The news continues. Time for Laura Coates and CNN Tonight. Hey, John, I woke up this next morning listening to you, and now I see you 12 <laughs> hours later. Have a good night, my friend. Thank see you. you. A few hours. <laughs> see you in a few hours. That's right. Listen, I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. We have breaking news tonight on the unexpected death of comedian and actor Bob Saget. His family has just shared the final conclusions from authorities on what caused Saget's sudden passing, and we'll share that with you ahead. We also have big breaking news from the New York Times. The paper is reporting that the National Archives has discovered what it believed was classified information in documents Donald Trump had taken with him from the White House as he left office and has consulted now with the Justice Department about their very discovery. Now, according to the Times, the DOJ told the National Archives to have its inspector general examine the matter. And frankly, it's not clear what might have transpired since then. As you know, mishandling classified materials is a big deal. And Donald Trump should know because he made it the centerpiece of his campaign against Hillary Clinton and her handling of emails and prompting all the lock her up champs that we all remember so well. Now, they apparently discovered the information at Mar-a-Lago after the former president returned 15 boxes of documents to the government just last month. Now, the Washington Post is also reporting that the archives asked the DOJ to investigate Trump's handling of White House records. So, of course, the question is, does this put the ex-president in any criminal legal jeopardy? Here was the House Intelligence Committee chairman, Adam Schiff, his take on CNN just moments ago. It looks very willful. Uh, and if there's evidence of potential willfulness in the destruction of documents, that is the kind of case that if any case is going to be prosecuted, might be prosecuted. To be continued, it seems. And meanwhile, President Biden has been in office for over a year now. And yet we're still learning new details about just how far some were actually willing to go to try to interfere with, let alone overturn, a free and fair election. And tonight, yet another revelation. And this one has to do with one of the central figures of the coup attempt, Rudy Giuliani. Now, the Washington Post reports that Trump's former lawyer, along with some others, actually called a prosecutor in Michigan in the days after the election and asked him to seize voting machines and give those voting machines to the Trump team. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. He wanted the actual voting machines, not the tally. He wanted the machines. Now, remember, this is Antrim County, Michigan. And, and why is this county important, you ask? Well, frankly, remember, this is the county that made a mistake. The Republican county initially had Biden with a 3,000 vote lead on election night. But they later saw there was an error in their count and that it wasn't Trump, uh, wasn't Biden who would won by more than 3,000 votes. It was actually Donald Trump who won by more than 3,000 votes. And they corrected the error and quickly to reflect that Trump, in fact, did win there. And they realized it on their own, apparently. Translation, the system worked to reflect the truth and correct the error. But despite that, this county became the poster child for Trump and company to try to suggest that widespread fraud was all across the country. And examples like this mistake were so rampant as to justify their endeavors. 
Now, the Antrim County prosecutor, his name is James Rossiter, told the Post that he declined the request to hand over the voting machines, saying he, quote, never expected in my life I'd get a call like that. Well, similar calls have happened in other places like Georgia, I believe. And as for Giuliani, well, he also declined to comment to the Washington Post. But will he do the same with the January 6th committee? Because they certainly have a lot more now to ask him about. Now, that panel was apparently supposed to meet with Giuliani just yesterday, but we're not sure what happened. And apparently it's being rescheduled. So why does this matter? Well, frankly, it's not just the rehashing of things you may have known or trying to figure out ways to find the connective tissue. It's the anatomy of the big lie and the apparent catalyst for what you are seeing on your screens right now. What you saw on January 6th, that violent insurrection. And and make no mistake, it was a violent insurrection. Not, what was the phrase that there was, there was used? Um, legitimate political discourse. That's the RNC so wrongly described it as in a resolution just last week when they were censuring GOP congresspersons Cheney and Kinziger, not for their roles on January 6th, but for their roles on the January 6th select committee. But you know who else says this was a violent insurrection? Well, the Senate's top Republican who happened to once press his colleagues to oppose a bill to create an insurrection commission. You guessed it. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election. Now, you can kind of tell, maybe from the body language or otherwise, that Mitch McConnell, he wants this whole mess within his party over how to define and talk about January 6th to go away. Frankly, I'm sure Republicans want nothing more than to be able to capitalize on what they perceive as the shortcomings of the Biden administration. And there is room for fair criticism of the Biden administration. And I'm sure they want to talk about those issues, but instead they're facing a kind of circular firing squad that the former President Obama thought was happening when Biden was vying for the DNC nomination. Remember that? And McConnell realizes that the midterm elections, they're coming. I mean, nine months ago, just yesterday, they'll be here. And the more the Capitol attack is, well, downplayed and they're wrestling with how to define it, well, it could very well undermine the Republican effort to reclaim Congress and the majority. And meanwhile, that divide shows you what's happening in the House. You see GOP leader Kevin McCarthy. Let's just assume and give the benefit of the doubt that he's racing not to get away from a reporter, but he has someplace very important to be. Although he appears to be initially running away from questions about the RNC's use of the words, what was it again? Legitimate political discourse. And then, well, defending it. Now he's saying that he actually agrees with Mitch McConnell that the attack was a violent insurrection. But also today, he's saying that the committee had a right to do their resolution just how they wanted. So while McConnell and McCarthy are worried about the prospective political consequences of a divided GOP in the upcoming midterms, well, they should keep an eye on the movement growing in a place like North Carolina to have a political consequence felt, well, right now. There's an attempt right now to block the Republican Congressman Madison Cawthorn from being able to even run for re-election over his role in January 6th. 
In a court filing, the state's elections board says it has the power to disqualify the congressman from even running. Because days before the attack, the congressman said it was, quote, time to fight. And he spoke, if you recall, at the Stop the Steal rally that deadly day. Wow, this crowd has some fight in it. And at 12 o'clock today, we will be contesting the election. Our Constitution was violated. My friends, I want you to chant with me so loud that the cowards on Washington, D.C. that I serve with can hear you. Well, someone's been listening, and it's, well, in North Carolina. Now, Cawthorn, he has denied any wrongdoing. He's even filed a federal lawsuit just last week to try to shut down this challenge. We have a key player of that effort. Our first guest is a former North Carolina Supreme Court justice who's representing the voters who are now challenging Cawthorn's legitimacy. Bob Orr joins me now. Bob, good to see you. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I got to tell you, first of all, my mom is from North Carolina, so I see that you're from God's country, as she would say. But we'll we'll bypass that for a moment and get right into the meat of the matter here, because I think many people look at this and say, well, how is this possible? How would you be able to prevent him from running for reelection? It all comes around the 14th Amendment. Explain why. Well, that's exactly right. It's actually the Constitution of the United States that disqualifies Madison Cawthorn from being a candidate for office in 2022. North Carolina has a challenge statute in which voters in the district in which the individual files, in this case, the 13th congressional district, uh, file this challenge saying that they have reasonable suspicion that Cawthorn is disqualified based upon the 14th Amendment, Section 3. And so there is a process in place in the statutes in which We can both undergo discovery and uh, depose Mr. Cawthorn, but also present our case to an election board's panel uh, with the burden on him to actually show that he is qualified. Now, that's fascinating. And first, I remember if people are recalling the last impeachment, recall, of course, that this same section was being used perhaps as in the undercurrent as to why to impeach an outgoing president to prevent reelection under the same premise in theory. But the idea of who has the burden here might surprise people. So you're saying that he himself would have to prove that he actually is entitled to still be on the ballot. What's behind that notion and, and what would he have to essentially show contrastingly to what you would have to prove when you bring this case? Well, the State Board of Elections serves as a clearinghouse for anybody who purportedly wants to run for public office. And and so there are a number of disqualifying uh, procedures or, or aspects, both in the United States Constitution and in the North Carolina Constitution. And so it's incumbent upon the state board when that that challenge or question is raised to have a process to wean out people who are simply disqualified from public office and therefore not clutter the ballot with anybody and everybody who who thinks they ought to be uh, elected to some office. Now, he does think that he ought to remain in office, not just because he wants to be a part of it. Of course, he and his attorney has come out pretty forcefully on this issue. And he said the undemocratic scheme contained in the North Carolina challenge provisions 
supplants voters for state bureaucrats who will determine who can represent the people. This is fundamentally anti-democratic and contrary to the public interest. Of course, I note you must and necessarily disagree on this notion, but what do you say to the criticism that suggests this is just a tactic that Democrats are using? You don't like them. You don't want them to be in office. You're pointing January 6th as a pretextual reason. What do you say to that notion to have a retort? Well, first of all, it's the Constitution that we're seeking to uh, enforce. And it's important to note that after the voters filed this challenge uh, under the North Carolina statute, Cawthorn's attorneys went into federal court in the Eastern District of North Carolina and filed a lawsuit seeking to, to stop uh, the, the challenge procedure from going forward. And just this past week, uh, the the legal team representing the, the voters uh, sought to intervene in the federal court proceeding and the state board of elections represented by the attorney general's office in North Carolina filed their response uh, in opposition to Cawthorn's efforts to try and stop what is a very fundamental process uh, under the laws of North Carolina. The operative words here, of course, this is rooted in the Constitution. I do wonder, Bob, to what extent this might create a blueprint for others who are challenging under similar on similar premises, because, of course, this is all about the Constitution. But I, as you know, I'm sure he's not going to go down without a fight. Absolutely. We'll stick with this story. Bob Orr, thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, there is breaking news on Bob Saget's cause of death. The beloved comedian suffering head trauma apparently before going to sleep. And the question so many people are asking is how, how could this happen? America's doctor Sanjay Gupta has the answers next. Breaking tonight, exactly one month since Full House star Bob Saget was found dead in his Florida hotel room. We're now learning the cause of his death from his family. Their statement reads, in part, the authorities have determined that Bob passed from head trauma. They've concluded that he accidentally hit the back of his head on something, thought nothing of it, and went to sleep. No drugs or alcohol were involved. I want to bring in our chief doctor and neurosurgeon, Sanjay Gupta. I'm so glad that you're here to help break this down because I got to tell you, first of all, he's a beloved comedian, as you know, but people also are very fearful and afraid of what this could possibly mean. How likely is this that it could occur to other people and and how could this happen? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's so sad, Laura. Yes. Certainly what has happened here. Um, You know, I I think... uh, what, what may have happened is that he may have had a significant blow to the head sometimes, you know, uh, in the hotel room and on the headboard of the bed or on in the bathtub or something. If you have a significant blow, uh, you may develop some, at the time, what is sort of slow bleeding, not significant bleeding right away, but the blood starts to accumulate over time. Uh, if he was in bed, you know, went to sleep, he may have lost consciousness and that blood continued to accumulate, ultimately leading to his death. It's not... This is called the subdural hematoma, and I can show you an image of what it's like. I don't want people to immediately get frightened that every time they hit their head, this sort of thing is going to happen. But you're looking at that image there. What happens is that slow bleeding may sort of accumulate on top of the brain. The brain, because it's encased in bone 
unlike any other organ in the body, uh, it has nowhere to go. And as a result, um, that can lead to pressure on the brainstem and ultimately take someone's life. That's typically what happens in these, these situations. That's in what's called an acute subdural hematoma, something that happens suddenly. We don't know for, for sure uh, exactly what, what occurred here. We know that he had bruising, it sounds like, on the back of his head. You, you read the report just now. That's what the, uh, the uh, examiners have sort of concluded. That's sometimes uh, the, the sort of process that takes place there. But again, Laura, just... just so sad uh, in a situation like this. He was alone, so there wasn't yes. someone who could check in on him as well. You know, are you doing okay? Are you feeling confused? Are you nauseated? Do you have worsening headache? All those sorts of things. And of course, he went to sleep afterwards, or presumably he was already in bed in this notion, and maybe he thought he was okay. And it does break your heart to think about it. All of us travel or thinking about, you know, your husband yeah. traveling and that last phone call, and maybe they mentioned it on the phone and you thought kind of nothing right. of it. Perhaps you just don't know. But I, I think about the way, and maybe it's the, the, the lawyer in me thinking about it this way, Sanjay. How, how do you sort of work backwards then from that? If you're looking at the way in which you conclude how the death may have occurred, would there have been something visible, say, on the head? Would there have been sort of an outward bump of some kind? Or are you saying because of the way of a hemorrhage could work, it would really be uh, almost inward projecting? Yeah, well, so first of all, in terms of the actual, you know, the conclusions of the medical examiners, um, there may have been bruising on the back of the head. They may have done a, you know, an autopsy that actually, you know, concluded this, actually finding this blood collection. They may have uh, combined that with evidence, uh, like you said, of a phone call. Yeah, I hit my head earlier. It was pretty bad, but I think I'm going to be okay. Uh, And putting all that together. But in terms of the image there, if that's what you're asking about, Laura, yes, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see, that bleeding is all on the inside. Again, you may see some bruising on the outside, on the skin, but all that bleeding I'm showing there is under the skull on top of the brain. And um, so that wouldn't be visible immediately. Again, somebody may think, hey, look, I hit my head pretty hard there, but I feel okay. Mm-hmm. That's a message, you know, to, to people. If you've had a significant blow to the head, if you have a headache and the headache's worsening, if you're developing confusion, if you have nausea and vomiting, if you're slurring your speech, if you're on blood thinners, um, that, that's another indication that you are more likely to develop a bleed like this. Older people, Laura, because their brains are shrunk a little bit more, they have more room to, to have this blood sort of accumulate on top of their brain. So older people are more at risk. He was 65, so not old, but as you get older, your brain does start to, to shrink a bit. So all these things are things that as trauma neurosurgeons we have in the back of our minds in terms of likelihood of someone developing this sort of problem. But again, it's, just, it's unusual in, in that he was by himself. He was in a hotel. He, there was nobody to, to witness exactly what happened, so they had to sort of piece this together. You know, I, you know, I'm asking, I know we are speculating on some parts of this, and we know the statement, and we're thinking about it, um, but you are the perfect person to ask these sort of questions with, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, because I think for so many, we're all sort of in that world of WebMD and trying to diagnose, and I yeah. know that must drive you crazy, and people come in and say, well, I've actually Googled this, so here's what it must be, and you probably think, actually, let me tell you what this is, but for those people who are out there right now, and it feels very scary for me and for everyone hearing about this, what do you look for? For. And you mentioned the idea of a slurred speech. You mentioned the idea of feeling confusion. Um, if, is there a certain window of time? I know if you have a stroke, they sort of read the signs and there's a window of opportunity. Blood thinners are supposed to be um, you know, provided in some way to give you a chance for survival. Is there a window in which you need to get to the hospital if you're feeling this way? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about this is these types of, these bleeds, which are on top of the brain, typically, if that's, that's what he suffered from, which it sounds like, if you get to the hospital quickly within, you know, with stroke, it's really within three hours. With, with this sort of thing, you have to think about getting there as quickly as you can as well. If you can take the pressure off of the brain, and simply by removing some bone, removing this blood collection, take that pressure off the brain as quickly as possible, uh, you greatly increase the chances of survival. I mean, that's, it's just as simple as that. It's just basically, it's a pressure issue at that point. Again, the brain has nowhere to go because it's encased by bone. So, you know, I think the message is, again, I don't want to frighten people, and people do bump their heads all the time, and it mm-hmm. turns out to be nothing. But if it's a severe blow to the head, if you have some of these symptoms, again, I'll just say, you know, worsening headache, confusion, nausea, vomiting, slurring of speech, anything else that's just... Uh, unusual like that, if you're on blood thinners, and especially if you're an older person, um, those really do increase your, your, your chance of developing something like this. Again, it's, it's not common. I don't, I, I don't want to unnecessarily frighten people, but those are some indicators, some clues that you should get this checked out. Sometimes it'll just be a neurological exam in the emergency room. Sometimes you'll need a CAT scan. But uh, there are ways to quickly diagnose this and, and quickly do something about it if this is the problem. Thank you, Sanjay. And again, as you mentioned, this is not common, but you know, it should be taken very seriously if it does happen. And of course, it's just overwhelmingly sad to think that this was the end of his life yeah. in that way. Thank you, Sanjay. You got it, Laura. Thank you. Oh, man. Well, up next, more blue states announcing plans to drop mask mandates in schools and also businesses. But the CDC, well, they're still recommending masks be worn indoors. So who are we supposed to listen to? We take that up next. So look, now more blue states are joining the bandwagon of easing COVID restrictions as all cases are seeming to drop across the country. You've got Massachusetts and New York and Rhode Island and Illinois all joined other states today in lifting mask mandates either in schools or indoor public spaces entirely. It now puts them, frankly, in conflict with the Biden administration's guidance, which still calls for masking indoors. And that's regardless of vaccination status. CDC director defended the agency's stance today. We are working on that guidance. We are working on, you know, following the trends for the moment. Um, What I will say, though, is, you know, our hospitalizations are still high. Our death rates are still high. So as we work towards that and as we um, are encouraged by the current trends, we are not there yet. All right. So look, who are we supposed to listen to? Is it the CDC? Is it our governors? What's the deal? I want to bring in a practicing internist, Dr. Lucy McBride, to help me understand a little bit more about who we should be listening to. Dr. Lucy McBride, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks, Laura, for having me. You know, obviously there's confusion. We've heard for months now there's been tension about the messaging. Now we have messaging issues for a very different reason. But I guess I have to ask, who should people be following? Obviously, politics has a way of seeping into all these discussions. But when the average person is figuring out to mask or not to mask, that is the question, who are they listening to for the answers? It's a great question. And I think for two years, people have been starved for clear, transparently communicated facts and data and a framework within which they can make complex decisions to protect themselves, their families, and their communities. 
I'm a primary care doctor. I don't know everything, but I do know a few things about helping people manage risk, managing their risk for severe outcomes from COVID-19, managing their risk for depression, anxiety, diabetes, dementia, heart disease. At this moment in the pandemic, Laura, where we have been blessed with incredibly effective and safe vaccines that take the fangs and claws away from the virus and turn it into a more manageable disease, where we have more widely available oral antiviral medications to help our highest risk population patients um, be at lower risk for severe consequences, and where we have abundant data showing exactly who is at highest risk for severe outcomes, it's really time to, number one, Think about who you trust. And for a lot of people, it's their primary care doctor if they're fortunate enough to have one. And number two, to think about shifting the responsibility of protecting you um, in your classroom, for example, from the government to your own personal risk tolerance. At this moment, it's appropriate to think about unmasking kids in schools when they face the lowest risk for poor outcomes from COVID and are right now subjected to the strictest measures. Well, you know, I, of course, have two children who are in elementary school. And so this is an issue that's top of mind in our households and our neighborhoods across the country. And of course, we know and we heard, we're, I think a lot of us are comparing what we knew then, what we were told then versus now, and sort of making educated guesses based on what we're hearing and filtering. But there's still that notion of under five population still has not been vaccinated. And you do see the rates of people being infected even when they're vaccinated. I agree, of course, you do have the embarrassment of three riches in the form of vaccines. So how do people go about assessing what their risk tolerance ought to be? Because even that can be a cause for concern of, well, am I being an irresponsible parent if I don't have a mask on my kid, even if they're vaccinated? Is there peer pressure of society or the schools? How do I go about assessing my own views of risk. Right. It's really, really complicated. And this is what I spend time doing with my patients every day is sort of marrying the broad public health advice with evidence and then the patient's unique medical vulnerabilities. Let me say this. So I hear people who have kids under five who are unvaccinated. Those kids have not yet had the benefit of the vaccine. At the same time, the under five-year-olds are generally at very low risk for poor outcomes. The under six-month kids are at a little bit higher risk, but those kids can be protected if they're lucky enough to be breastfed by antibodies transferred from the mother um, through breast milk. Um, for, for, for people who are worried about whether their child is going to spread to teachers, for example, because we all want to care for our communities, I would remind people that the data are clear that kids tend to spread the virus less than adults. Kids have been assumed to be these vectors of disease when actually they transmit the virus less. And then when they've been vaccinated, while the vaccine doesn't eliminate the risk of transmission, it reduces it somewhat. Moreover, we don't have good, clear, real-world evidence that masking kids in schools has a meaningful effect on transmission of the virus. And so when you have a, a, an intervention like a mask, it's not appropriate to mandate it when the benefits are clear and the harms are non-zero. I'm not anti-mask. I recommend masks to my patients. Before we had vaccines, I recommended masks You know, in 2020. It's just that the conditions have changed, and now it's time to really think hard about the data and take fear out of the driver's seat and put the facts in the driver's seat with the help of your primary care doctor, if you're lucky enough to have one.
Well, that's a big contingency, right? The idea of if you like you have to have one. And that's also right. if you yes. also are vaccinated. Right. Really quick, though, I have no time left, but really quick here. So if you believe that about masks and not being necessary, essential in the same way, does that mean that you necessarily must require vaccines then? There are a corollary of the other. The safety so, feelings of one means the other has already been accomplished or administered. Well, not necessarily. I think I think there's a lot more nuance than what would appear in, in the public square. Um, I think vaccines are extraordinarily safe and effective. I recommend vaccines to my patients, particularly my high-risk patients. Um, but remember, masks were supposed to be temporary measures until we got vaccines. And now we mm-hmm. have them. And now we have declining case and hospitalization rates. And we have widespread availability of vaccines and oral therapeutics. So it's a different it's a different time. It's 2022. And it's time to really, really think about lifting restrictions and put the responsibility into the individual's hands. Well, many individual governors are saying that same thing. We'll see what happens. Dr. Lucy McBride, thank you so much. Thanks. We've got Commissioner Roger Goodell now admitting today that the NFL is falling short on hiring minority coaches says Captain Obvious. He's not vowing, though, to take a hard look at whether policies need to change. But is it enough? We'll discuss next. Listen, we're days away from the Super Bowl. But instead of talking about the big game, the NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell today addressed accusations of racial hiring discrimination. Listen. Well, they are getting into the room and they're getting the interviews. In fact, they're exceeding anything in the Rooney rule as far as the interviews. It's the what we want to try to see is the outcomes. Right. We want to see um, blackhead coaches in the NFL and coaches of, of, of people of color. Now, his comments come in the wake of a class action lawsuit by former coach Brian Flores, who's alleging discrimination against black head coaches and executives. Here's the facts, by the way, about the league's hiring. So we're all on the same page. So currently, about 70 percent of NFL players are black, yet the league has only two black head coaches. And between 2012 and 2021, NFL teams hired 82 white head coaches and general managers, as opposed to only 17 head coaches and managers of color. That's nearly, for those doing the math, five times more. And look at the offensive and defensive coordinators. Well, the pattern is still there as well. 168 white hires versus only 51 people of color over a 10-year period. Let's discuss now with Bamani Jones. He's the host of the Right Time with Bamani Jones podcast. Bamani, good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm good, although those, those figures are quite disturbing when you think about the overall league in and of itself. And you heard Goodell say they're investigating into the matter and that the Rooney rule is getting interviews, but they wanted to actually translate to something. I mean, Bamani, isn't part of the problem here that the Rooney rule more and more about having to have at least diverse coaches be interviewed, that it really is phoning it in when it's already a preconceived or determined conclusion? Well, the thing I always say about the Rooney rule is that when when it was initially implemented, I think you can look at the numbers and the hires that took place at the time and see that it was actually pretty effective at this point. It feels like teams are more concerned with circumventing it than honoring the spirit of the rule itself. 
But I'm always very cautious about blaming the rule because the problem is, in fact, the people, right? Like the thought behind the Rooney Rule in part is honestly this thing where we're just so insistent upon making sure that we don't treat any white person like they're doing something wrong, right? So the idea is, oh, no, this hiring before, you just didn't know who the people were. But if we put those people in front of you, then you will see what it is. And you're putting the people in front of them, then now we see what it is. And we look at this, and of course, spoken like a true, almost a true lawyer in that sense of it's not the rule, it's the people who are doing the wrong thing. And following the rule, I got to ask, how does an investigation change this? I mean, how do you look at the issue if you're Goodell and you're people who are looking at Goodell wanting to actually believe that there could be the spirit of the rule actually enforced? Where do you go? I mean, is it satisfactory to say that there's not the answers yet, but they're looking for them? No, no, you're going to have to go to court. Like, that's the thing about Flores is it is worth I knew noting. Are, are, you, are you a lawyer? Flores Hold on. Is, are you a lawyer after all? I heard no, it. Go to I court just, now. I see it. <laughs> no, I just have a basic understanding that all progress on race in this country typically involves having to take somebody to court. You'll note that the hires that we saw that took place after Brian Flores uh, decided to put this paperwork in, it seemed like somebody happened to be listening. At the very least in Houston, it looked like somebody happened to be listening at this mm. point. But the expectation that people are just going to be good and then come around and be like, wow, we've been tripping. That's probably not going to happen. This particular organization and honestly, this country at large responds to somebody threatens to take him to court. You know, it is one of our favorite pastimes, not baseball, really litigation. I got to ask, though, on the idea of how this goes down in terms of those court filings in particular, you know, there has been pushback on these issues and not just in the NFL, really across corporate America and the like, that people are averse or are calling this things like playing the race card or that people, if you're firing someone for a legitimate reason, they will say, well, if that person is a person of color, they're afraid that they're going to be labeled a racist in that sense. Do you buy into that or? Or is there a way to navigate around that and actually recognize that there are often pretextual reasons? No, that's just a damn lie. We call we, we, the, the questions they're fielding right now about whether or not this institution is racist. And that's from not hiring people. Like, just think about this for a second. If your thought process going in is I would hire that dude. But if we fire him, then they are going to call us racist. Why are you going into this thinking about firing the person that you just hired? That should be the most optimistic day in the world. So when people are saying that they're walking in with the level of skepticism that you don't think that they would ever express when dealing with the other candidates, that's just, I mean, I couldn't believe that that was actually printed as though something, it was something that you should consider because that's such an obvious and transparent lie. Well, it is. Let's see what actually comes of this civil, I mean, this actual class action lawsuit as well. But Monty Jones, thank you for your time. Nice talking to you. All right, you too. You know, up next, a new battle erupting between the Biden White House and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis over his state's so-called don't say gay bill. You heard me. I'll make my case next. Okay, shh. I don't want you to say gay in school because apparently it'll hurt the kids. What is this nonsense in 2022? I mean, heck, in any year for that matter. I'm talking about this backwards bill advancing now in Florida's Republican-controlled state house that would limit discussions about sexual orientation and gender identity in the classroom. Now, it's officially called the Parental Rights in Education Bill, But critics have dubbed it the don't say gay bill. 
arguing that it will strip protections from LGBTQ children and will lead to more bullying and suicides within an already marginalized community. Now, President Biden's even weighing in here, calling the legislation, quote, hateful. Now, of course, parents should have the right to have a say in what their kids are being taught. I know when it comes to my own children, I'd like for someone to try to stop me from at least weighing in on their education. But making it illegal for educators to discuss sexual orientation, gender identity, and actually encouraging parents to sue if they do? How is that okay? I mean, why is one's sexual orientation or gender identity or the discussion of it the new Voldemort? I thought we saw that figurative movie of discrimination. We, we didn't like it and we progressed. Maybe I'm wrong. But proponents of the law say that discussing the reality of sexual orientation and gender identity hurts children. You know what's hurting children most? Being constantly thrust into the middle of America's culture wars battlefield. The White House puts it this way. Make no mistake, this is not an isolated action. Across the country, we're seeing Republican leaders take actions to regulate what students can or cannot read, what they can or cannot learn, and most troubling, who they can or cannot be, cynically treating our students as pawns in a game. Pawns. Do you agree? Well, if they are indeed pawns, as they suggest, then frankly, I'm afraid to even guess what is really the end game. And yet, all over the country, the gamesmanship of culture wars are enveloping our schools, whether it's the hysteria over critical race theory, teaching about race or racism in American history, Alabama-approved resolution that actually bans the teaching of so-called divisive concepts associated with critical race theory, as if children need to be shielded from learning about inequality, or as if critical race theory was ever actually a part of any elementary school's curriculum. I believe the course you might be referring to only has one word, history. Now, Virginia's new governor actually set up a tip line for parents to tattle on teachers who engage in any, quote, inherently divisive teaching practices like CRT. There is an anti-critical race theory bill in the West Virginia House now, too. And according to an Education Week tally, since January of 2021, Do you realize that 37 states have introduced bills or taken other steps that restrict teaching critical race theory or or even limit how a teacher can talk about racism and sexism? And 14 states have imposed these bans and restrictions. That's a lot of states. And then there's the growing book banning craze. The Pulitzer Prize winning Holocaust novel Mouse just banned from an eighth grade curriculum by a school board in Tennessee over concerns about, quote, rough, objectionable language and a drawing of a nude woman. Well, let me tell you, if you find the book offensive, what do you make of the rough and objectionable history that it is relaying? And then there's all the vitriol at school board meetings about mask mandates or vaccine requirements or remote learning, all this chaos and clashing over everything. But did you think about what impact it's having on America's children? Now, I'm not comfortable with them getting caught in the wake as collateral damage. Are you comfortable? 
In 2022, according to Florida's governor, it's entirely inappropriate for teachers and school administrators to have conversations with students about their gender identity. Well, according to the data from the Human Rights Campaign, more than 100 anti-transgender bills were introduced last year all across the country and, and many more this year. What kind of message does that send our youth? Look, I'm old enough and I'm young enough to remember that we wanted our classrooms to be a marketplace of ideas, where curriculum was not a synonym for indoctrination, where ideas were tested and philosophies challenged, opinions were to be formed, not assigned. Look, read fiction, but teach the truth, or it won't just be our kids you hurt, it will be all of our future. Arrest my case. Well, that's it for us tonight. I'll be back tomorrow. Don Lemon, tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.